Welcome back to Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Holy hell. I cannot wait to be done with Israel Keys because he was just such an SOB. And to learn that everyone around him thought he was just hunky-dory normal father of the year makes me cringe. But I started it, so I gotta finish it. So here goes. On today's episode, I will tell you all about Israel Keys's upbringing, his time in the military, and his home family life with his daughter, her mother, and ultimately the woman he was dating when he was arrested. Join me today as we learn more about the double life of Israel Keys. Now, let's dig in. Now, there is no one who knows me or who has ever known me who knows anything about me, really. Mm-hmm. They know they're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kind of things I'm telling you, is me. Okay. How long have you been two different people? <laughs> long time. 14 years. That was the voice of Israel Keys during one of his many interrogations. And Israel Keys was a serial killer that stumped even the best of the best. The FBI profilers, they just couldn't figure this guy out. He had no victim prototype. I'm going to read a really good quote about Israel Keys by author Maureen Callahan in the book American Predator. She said, quote, There was no precedent for a serial killer with this MO. No victim type, no fixed location for hunting, killing, and burying putting thousands of miles between himself and his victims, caches buried all over the United States. He avoided detection through travel. Travel! They thought about how onerous travel itself could be, booking flights, clearing post-9-11 security and searches, hoping a flight isn't delayed or canceled, doing the paperwork involved in renting a car and then relying only on paper maps, no Garmin, satellite, or Google, checking into a hotel or setting up a campsite, filing for hunting and fishing licenses, to say nothing of successfully finding a victim or victims while trying to retrieve some cash buried months or years ago, the locations only in his head, then expertly disposing of his victims' remains and leaving no evidence behind. The sheer efficiency and time management Keyes displayed was staggering, end quote. So who was this guy and how did he learn how to be so patient and low key? Well, for starters, Keyes was a student of crime books. Yep, he admitted to investigators that he read two books. Well, he read more books, but these are the two that really shaped him. One was called Dark Dreams, Sexual Violence, Homicide and the Criminal Mind by Roy Hazelwood. And the second book was Mindhunter, Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit by John Douglas. Apparently, in the book Dark Dreams, the author describes traits specific to sexual predators, two of them being no prior criminal history and compulsive driving. Wait, what? When I first read about this in the book American Predator, I was shocked. Like, what in the hell? Compulsive driving? Well, the author of Dark Dreams explains that compulsive driving is a shared tendency in psychopaths because of their need to be in control. Driving offers a form of freedom while also offering visual stimulation because sexual predators are often bored just sitting around. And wait for it. Apparently, when a sexual predator isn't offending, they are not dormant. They will spend their time looking for their next victim, organizing their tools of the trade, or somehow planning, which if you think about it, this is truly terrifying. Keys also idolized other serial killers. His favorite, Ted Bundy. Another thing the FBI learned as they studied Keyes was that he took different traits from different serial killers. Ted Bundy killed across the country, 
Buffalo Bill, he kept kill kids. Another serial killer who was a truck driver kidnapped and killed in one state and then dropped off the body in another state. Keyes admitted that he had at one point considered becoming a police officer because he thought, what better way to hunt for victims? And as we'll learn in a little bit, Keyes did go on to serve honorably in the army. So of course, you're probably really wondering, tell me more about Keyes' background. Well, after Keyes was arrested, of course, his attorney and many others wondered if Israel Keyes was of sound mind. And with that came an exam by a forensic psychologist. On April 27, 2012, Keyes met with Dr. Ronald Roche to discuss life. Together with Keyes' responses and interviews of Keyes' close contacts, the FBI was able to put together a picture of Israel Keyes, at least who he was from the outside looking in. Israel Keyes was born on January 7, 1978 in Cove, Utah, to mother Heidi and John Jeffrey Keyes. Israel Keyes would go on to be the second oldest of nine children. There were five girls and four boys. Israel was named a biblical name, which means God perseveres or someone who wrestles with God. Heidi, Keyes' mom, was born Heidi Hankinson, and she was from Los Angeles. She was adopted as a child to an older Mormon couple that had been married for 17 years by the time they started their family. Heidi was described as a loner and appeared to be an only child, which is probably why she enjoyed the company of adults rather than other kids her age. But she did spend most of her childhood participating in Girl Scouts, which couldn't make her too much of a loner. But I guess I could be wrong. I was never a Girl Scout. John Jeffrey Keyes was a pretty good handyman, both for work and his free time. He liked to be with family, and he was also Mormon. He even spent time on a missionary trip in Germany. Heidi and John met as teenagers, and they were married when they were in their early 20s. Once married, they moved to Utah because they both enjoyed the simple way of life versus the hustle and bustle of city life. They would go on to have nine children, but they hated hospitals. So all the kids were born at home. The couple also didn't believe in medicine or hospitals or vaccines, so they stayed as far away from that as possible. Another thing they didn't believe in was traditional schooling. They didn't want their kids' minds to be corrupted, so they homeschooled everyone. And by the way, Heidi would treat all ailments with herbs and oils. She believed that peppermint tea and a warm bath, which probably didn't come often, could cure it all. Oh, and by the way, since the kids were birthed at home and the parents didn't believe in even the government, the kids didn't even have birth certificates or social security numbers. Okay, put up in on that because I'll talk about that a little bit later. Anyway, let's rewind a bit. Their first child was a daughter born in 1976. Keys followed two years later in 1978. And while everything seemed normal to Heidi and John, one of their neighbors called authorities when they got worried. They were wondering, why the hell do we never see the kids outside? Which is a little interesting and you wonder if there is more to that story. But anyway, once authorities came snooping, the Keyes family was like, well, that's enough of that. So they moved to Colville, Washington, and they bought 160 acres where their closest neighbor wouldn't even know their names. In addition to the big move, the Keyes family quit the Mormon church, unclear why, but in Washington, they started attending a church called the Ark. The Ark was a militia-based white supremacist anti-Semitic church. So let's go back to the 160 acres. 160 acres sounds amazing, right? The thing is, there was no living structure on these acres. But because John Jeffrey was so handy, he decided that he would build the house on his own. But where would the family live until the house was built? Well, they rented a one-bedroom cabin. The thing about the cabin is that it had no heat, no indoor plumbing, and no electricity. And the family would live here while they continued to add kids to the family for seven years. And there was like a new baby popping out every two years. Oh, and Papa Keys? Well, he was hardworking. But in my personal opinion, not hardworking enough. The man, apparently, instead of working on the house more quickly, well, he spent many of his morning hours in the woods praying. I mean, let's be honest. He was probably just trying to get away from all them kids. But anyway, back at the cabin, no electricity meant no TV, no phone, no computer, a small amount of friends, and a ton of cats and dogs. The kids were forced to memorize scripture, wear nothing but hand-me-downs, including shoes that were too small for their feet. And they were forced to babysit each other. 
They were also free laborers. They were farming and chopping firewood. Keyes, as the oldest boy, became the man of the house because his dad was always away from the home and his younger siblings really looked up to him. By the way, the shoes too small thing, that really affected Keyes as he would grow up to have disfigured feet from literally cramming his feet in small shoes. Keyes, at a young age, learned how to cook, clean, sew, and braid hair. Well, eventually, as the cabin in the woods got crowded, the older kids had to live in tents outside during the warmer months, which meant that from April through November, the kids had to sleep outside in tents. What happened during the winter months then? I'll tell you. Heidi traveled with the kids to her home state of California. There, they stayed in their grandma's trailer in Palm Springs. Well, more about Israel Keys. The family had always been gun nuts, and Keys had been handling them since he was six years old. Unlike most first graders, Keys memorized everything he could about guns, their make, their model, their operating functions. He even knew the laws on guns, which were banned and which were good to go. I mean, let's be frank, the kid had nothing else to do, so go figure. But wait, while Keys didn't have a TV, his granddad did give him a gun, and Keys somehow got his hands on a magazine called Guns and Ammo. So it was probably his only connection to the outside world. And it was guns that would be Israel Keyes' shoe-in to crime. I mean, breaking and entering was his entry-level crime that we know of, but eventually he would break into homes to steal guns and eventually sell them. And this was when he was just a kid. But I guess he was tall as hell, so no one ever questioned him about why he had these guns. But for Keyes, it wasn't always real guns. Sometimes he used BB guns and sometimes he brought his younger sister with him into the woods to shoot BBs at people's houses. She was also one of his accomplices during some of the break-ins. For a hot minute, Keyes kind of felt like he could be himself around people, mostly kids his own age or his siblings. But once his sister became a blabbermouth, he stopped bringing her around. And then there was that one time that he tested out one of his buddies. He was with his friend out in the woods and Keyes shot a cat. He can't remember if it was a cat or a dog. The kid who was with him lost it and never hung out with Keyes again. But that wasn't the last time that Keyes did something like that, no. One time, out of pure anger because the cat kept getting into the trash, he grabbed his very own household cat, he grabbed a gun, and went out to the woods with a friend. Keyes tied the cat to a loose leash from the tree and then shot the cat in the stomach. The cat then ran around and around and around the tree, ultimately crashing into it and vomiting. The kid who was with him also started vomiting and eventually told his dad, who in turn told Keyes' dad. In Keyes' confession, he admitted to the investigators that that was probably the last time anyone went into the woods with him. By the time that Keyes was 15, he had had enough of tent life with his family. So he began to build his own cabin in the woods about a mile from his parents' house. His mom didn't want him to move out on his own, but she really had no say at that point. Keyes finished building the cabin when he was 16, and now that he was living alone, he could come and go as he pleased, which is great for an up-and-coming serial killer. The elder Keyes didn't want to be put to shame by his teenage son, so he got his act together, probably stopped praying so damn much in the woods, and finished up the family house, and that's when they moved in. But the house wasn't anything to write home about. Meanwhile, back at his solo cabin, Keyes took it upon himself to hone his craft. He would later reveal that that's when he began hunting anything with a heartbeat. During his hunt for animals, that's what he was hunting at the time, apparently, he learned how to stay uber still or else make his position known, which is eerily similar to Canadian serial killer Russell Williams. Remember, he used to sit still for hours just to prank his roommates and hunting, as Keyes put it allowed him the opportunity to stalk people. He loved the idea of watching humans while they had no clue he was looking at them. Keyes' first time in trouble with the law came in 1994 when he was just 16. He got busted for shoplifting. And that's when mom and dad put their foot down. They ransacked Keyes' cabin, found a bunch of stolen guns, forced him to not only return home, but they also forced him to return the guns and then repay the victims. Now that he was back at home living with a generator, a cooking range, and propane lights, Keyes made it known to his mom, at least, that he was not about that life. He didn't want to be like his mom and dad. Keyes' dad had already tried to distance himself from the Ark, 
1994, when Keyes basically told his parents that organized religion was not for him, Keyes was shocked that his father disowned him. But Heidi, she was a mom through and through, and she still cared about her son, but she was smothering with her religious beliefs. By the time Keyes was 18, he was working construction when he fell for his boss's daughter. He wrote like a teenager would basically about wanting to have sex with the girl. And when his parents found the diary, they flipped a lid and were like, you cannot see that girl. Other older Keys kids during this time, they were also acting out. And by acting out, I mean they were acting out in the typical sense. They were probably like, we don't know much because we are sheltered as hell, but we feel like we're missing out. And with that, the Keys parents were like, oh, hell no. These kids think they're going to get a personality. We have got to go. So they packed it up and moved to Maupin, Oregon. But Keyes did not initially go with the family. He stayed behind for a month. Keyes would later tell his girlfriend, the boss's daughter, that his mom was too controlling. And despite being disowned by his dad, Keyes eventually moved to Oregon to help his dad build yet another house. But apparently, Keyes' father would build houses, the family would live in them for just a moment of time, before they were off to build another house and again forced to live out of tent city. Again, with no electricity, just living off the land. In 1997, the Keyes family moved from Oregon to Malone, New York, which is upstate. The house was in Israel Keyes' name. A year later, they moved to Smyrna, Maine, and the family joined a new way of living among the Amish. But when the family moved to Maine, Keyes had had enough, and he stayed alone in the New York house. Because Israel Keyes had been homeschooled all his life, he decided to take a few classes to basically get a GED. He was good at all subjects except math, but Keyes was exceptionally smart, having the ability to teach himself almost anything. And you have to remember, this is the late 90s, not today in the era of YouTube and DIYers. Once Keyes had his school credit, in 1998, he drove down to New Jersey, and at the age of 20, he joined the army. One of the things that I found absurd is that according to author Maureen Callahan, Keyes was able to join the army without a birth certificate and without a social security number. Now, I don't really think that that's possible, especially not back in the day when your social security number was written in your PT gear at boot camp so as to not get lost. But what do I know? That's what has been highly publicized. But anyway, during his time in the service, Keyes was an infantryman, first stationed at Fort Hood, then at Fort Lewis. He deployed for six months to Egypt. The thing about military life is that Keyes strived in that structured environment. Remember, for all his life, he lived in complete chaos and disassociated from reality. So joining the military, there were a lot of firsts. His first time drinking, his first time doing drugs, LSD and cocaine specifically, his first time paying for a prostitute, his first time learning about pop culture and sports. Can you imagine this? So imagine this situation. Guys are sitting around on a Sunday trying to watch a football game, yelling at the TV. Meanwhile, Israel Keys is sitting there thinking, what in the hell are these guys yelling about? Well, once Keys tried the booze and the drugs, he liked it, at least initially. It is said that at one point, Keys spent $100 a day, a day on cocaine. And then when it didn't make him feel good, he stopped cold turkey. But it wasn't just about feeling good when he did drugs. Keyes felt that he lost too much control of himself and that was not okay with him. But the booze, you know, he thought he could handle the booze. It gave him confidence to speak to others and mingle among his military buddies like normal people. Then there was that one time, though, that he got busted on base for a DUI in February of 2001. That was when Keyes decided that maybe he shouldn't drink in all environments. For example, he definitely didn't want to drink around his family because there were way too many people to push his buttons and he didn't want to lose control. For the DUI that he got on base, Israel Keyes got a one-day sentence and paid a $350 fine. And it was while Keyes was in the army that he and his Washington state girlfriend got engaged. Yep, they had lived apart for all these months and years, but at this point, that was his girl and they were engaged. So now you had this fiance back in Washington. She had never had sex with Keys. So homegirl was thinking that Keys was out being faithful to her while he was in the army. But no can do, amiga. In true military style, Keys became a playa playa. 
Keyes was having sex with any willing partner and at least once even paid for sex. Another thing that Keyes learned while in the military was that he was bisexual. No one knew, except he did get busted, apparently, by his last girlfriend after drinking and surfing the web, chatting up with others. So it's the year 2000. Keyes is no kidding engaged, and he meets a single mom online. Her name is Tammy. But it's 2000. Tammy didn't just meet Keyes on a dating website. She met him through a personal ad that was audio. The personal ad said that it was from a 21-year-old man looking for a white female between the ages of 18 and 25 in the Colville, Washington area. The thing is that Tammy was neither white, nor was she in that age bracket, nor was she close to Colville. But she reached out to Keys anyway, not really to try to connect with the fellow who put up the ad, but to let him know that there was an issue with it. Now, I had no idea about personal voice ads from the year 2000, but apparently that was really a thing. Tammy, it turned out, was a decade older than Keys. She had an eight-year-old son and she lived in Nia Bay, a reservation in Washington. She belonged to the Macaw tribe. Even though she was nothing of what Keys was looking for, during their phone call, he asked her to continue talking to him and eventually they met up in person in December of 2000. It wasn't a love at first sight situation and the pair, they were vastly different. Keys was a tall white guy and Tammy was half black and half Native American. But eventually they grew close together when they realized how similar-ish their childhood was. As luck would have it, Tammy also grew up without electricity and indoor plumbing. And the two of them, Tammy and Israel, loved to drink. Although, listen, Tammy had gone through her first cycle of Alcoholics Anonymous by the time she was 17 or 18 years old. But even now, in her 30s, she was still a drinker. But the two bonded, and within two months of dating, even while Keys had an entire fiancé, Tammy got pregnant with Keys' child. Keys was adamant that they were not ready to have a kid. He begged Tammy to get an abortion, but she was like, no can do, buddy. You don't have to stick around if you don't want to. And Keys didn't want to. So during the pregnancy, they lost touch. Keys' fiance was interviewed by the FBI, and she indicated that she visited Keys at Fort Lewis in spring of 2001. She immediately knew something was off, particularly because Keys didn't want to introduce her to any of his army buddies. Once she left, Keys told her that he couldn't talk to her because he was off on training missions. And then suddenly he would start calling her nonstop. I'm not sure how much planning they were doing for their wedding, but they were set to be married in late summer, early fall 2001. But then in May, Keys partially confessed to his fiance. Keys told her he slept with someone else. He, of course, omitted the part about this other person being pregnant, but that was that and that relationship soon ended. That was when Keys returned to Tammy. By this point, he had made up his mind. He really wanted to be a father. Tammy, single mom of one, soon to be two, took Keys back. Keys left the military in July of 2001 and joined Tammy at Nia Bay on the reservation. He got a job with Parks and Recs and Keys became a family man, becoming a father to Tammy's young son and then welcoming a baby girl into the family. But wait, before I continue about what happened with Tammy and Keys, let me tell you more about Keys' time in the military. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, 
It truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Israel Keyes enlisted in the Army on July 9, 1998. In the Army, he trained as infantry. In 1999, he graduated Air Assault School at Fort Lewis, then he was stationed at Fort Hood, then assigned to Fort Lewis, where he stayed until his honorable discharge in 2001, right before 9-11. During his military tour, Keyes also attended a one-month training exercise in Panama. His training was for the Jungle Operations Training Center. In early 2000, Keyes deployed to Egypt. It is reported that during this deployment, Keyes and his army buddies visited Tel Aviv and patronized prostitutes, a.k.a. sex workers. It may have been during this experience that Keyes realized that his best bet in making his fantasy a reality to kill humans was to target complete strangers. It should be noted that there is no mention of anyone going missing near where Keyes was during his time in the military, but this may have been his mental space to begin the planning. It was revealed that one time while Keyes was deployed, he became so angry at another soldier that he walked up to him and said, I want to kill you. After joining the military, Keyes was already hesitant about religion, but it was during his time in the army that he drew the line in the sand. He was an atheist. The military was also the place where Keyes found alcohol, and he wasn't a light drinker. On weekends, he consumed entire bottles of wild turkey bourbon by himself. The FBI learned that during his stint in the military, Keyes got caught up in a DUI. But while that was the only time that he got caught for an offense, during his confessions, Keyes admitted to attempting to rape a prostitute and then admitted to raping a college student he met in Israel while he was deployed to Egypt. As for the attempted rape discussion, that actually may have been on a trip he took with his buddies. One of the soldiers that the FBI interviewed admitted that they were all staying in a room and taking turns with a woman who was being paid for her services. When Keyes entered the room with the woman, he was in there with her for about 30 minutes or so. But suddenly, the woman ran out of the room and made a beeline towards the door. The woman appeared frightened and she really wanted to leave. But Keyes blocked her exit and tried to get her to return to the room and then tried to pay the woman. But all she wanted to do was leave. This incident was never reported to anyone, and Keyes never told the other soldiers what happened in that room. When the FBI reached out to people who knew Keyes when he served, they had good things to say about him. For starters, I read that when the FBI reached out to one of Keyes' old supervisors, they thought they were calling for a reference, and in fact were shocked when they learned he was suspected for murder. Keyes was a huge guy, over six feet tall, 230 pounds of pure muscle. Many thought Keyes was a super soldier. He was Mr. Know-it-all, Mr. Fix-anything, Mr. Smarty-pants. And in reality, Keyes had the perfect ingredients to be a good soldier. During his service, Keyes received an Army Achievement Medal, and his citation said he served as a gunner and assistant gunner for two and a half years. While the FBI dug to learn more about Keyes, they did find one guy, one guy who seemed to know what Keyes was capable of. The book refers to this soldier as Perkins. When the FBI caught up with this soldier friend, Perkins told investigators, I'm not shocked that Keyes murdered. I'm shocked he got caught. Apparently, Keyes had shared his traveling bank robbery slash kidnapping slash serial killer dreams with this Perkins soldier. The soldier, though, well, he may have just taken it as a person trying to puff his chest. But deep down inside, he knew that Keyes was very capable. During their time together, Tammy began to realize that Keyes was controlling. He controlled everything in the household. The cleaning, the cooking, the parenting, the schedule. She knew it was all about control, but she let him take the reins, especially since her job required her to travel a lot, at least until she had the baby. Keyes' daughter was born on Halloween 2001. 
Two weeks later, his estranged father died and Keyes made his way to Maine for the funeral. When Keyes' daughter was eight months old, the relationship between Keyes and Tammy began to sour. The daughter became ill and Keyes, even though he was anti-anything his family believed, he was still anti-medicine. So the couple bumped heads on how to treat the baby. And then matters got worse when Tammy was diagnosed with uterine cancer. She was forced to have a hysterectomy, which back then forced her into early menopause. And remember, Keyes was already 10 years younger than her. At this point, Tammy was worried. Keyes would always say weird things to Tammy. Once he told her that he had a black heart. And one time he told her that he was a bad person. All these comments that Tammy didn't understand at the time, but then began to understand. It's during this time also that Keyes brands an upside down cross on his chest and puts a pentagram tattooed on the back of his neck. But an older Tammy, more experienced in life, she believed that Keyes was just taking on a rebellious stage post-military. And honestly, I had a post-active duty moment myself when I dyed my hair pink. I mean, it really looked red. And boy, do I regret those moments now. But anyway, I digress. Tammy chalked up Keyes growing out his hair, burning his body with satanic art as a phase. Anyway, after the surgery, Tammy became addicted to her medication. The medication also caused her to sleep her life away. And before she knew it, Keyes was a single dad. But Keyes wanted a normal life for his daughter. So in 2004, he took his daughter and moved to a different house, albeit still in Nia Bay. After he left Tammy, it is reported that Keyes dated three other women from the tribe. But in 2005, he began dating online. And that's when he met the woman he was with when he was arrested in 2012. They met on Match.com. So for all you singles looking for love online, watch out because there are some serial killers on there looking for love. The American Predator book and the Devil in the Darkness book names Keyes' new girlfriend as Kimberly. So I'll call her Kim. I'm not sure if that's her real name, but that's what we'll call her here. Kim was also older than Keyes. She was 41 when they met in 2005. She was a travel nurse. During this time that Israel Keyes began to date Kim, the mother of his child, Tammy, she continued to abuse her medication. During that time, she got into a car wreck, causing even more pain, getting her 25 days in the slammer and forcing her into an inpatient rehab program. Once Tammy was out of rehab, she would visit Keyes to see the baby. And even though he was officially with Kim, Israel Keyes began hooking up with Tammy again. At this point, Tammy figured now that Keyes had taken her back, it was a done deal. They were together. But when she learned Keyes was still with Kim, Tammy was not happy and she wanted to make sure that Kim knew. So she left a note on Kim's car windshield. Presumably the note was like, girl, step off. He's my man, my baby daddy, and you are nothing but trash. But I could be wrong. The thing is, Tammy may have expected Kim to contact her or whatever, but Kim didn't. Instead, months later, Keyes told Tammy he was moving with Kim to Alaska. Tammy was furious. She forbade Keyes from taking their daughter, so they duked it out in court. The court did not agree to relocating the daughter all the way to Alaska, so Keyes gave up. He was like, fine, Tammy, you keep her. But Tammy, it appeared, was only fighting Keyes to keep him from leaving. Israel Keyes left anyway, but not before Tammy agreed to joint custody and alternating years of taking care of their daughter. So I'm assuming that meant one year in Alaska and one year in Washington. And just like that, on March 1st, 2007, Israel Keyes left to Alaska. He was 29 years old and starting a new life in a new place. Once Keyes got to Alaska, he didn't stay put. For three months, he traveled the West Coast from Alaska all the way to Mexico. And what the FBI discovered when they put their heads together was mind-boggling. It appeared that before and after his move to Alaska, Keyes would head into Mexico for plastic surgery, follow-ups, and touch-ups. What? Yup. Apparently, he got a nose job, which is confirmed from people who described him in the early 2000s. They basically were like, Keyes had a huge nose. And if you look at pictures of him at the time he was captured, his nose wasn't so big. And on top of the nose job, and listen, I'm not anti-nose job, by the way. On top of the nose job, Keyes got a gastric sleeve put in or some sort of lap band slash hunger control surgery. Authorities believe that Keyes got this specific surgery, even though he was like not overweight at all. 
but they believe he got this surgery for nefarious reasons. Apparently, because he was going to be hunting people, he wanted to control his human need for food. He wanted to control his body's natural response to hunger. The less hungry Keys got, the longer he could go hunting for people and doing what he needed to do to get in and out without stopping for food or to use the restroom. Oh, but wait, that's not all he got. Apparently, Israel Keys also got Botox. What is going on here? This man sounds kind of vain. But Israel Keys didn't get Botox for vanity purposes, no. He did Botox as a way to control sweating. You know, because sweating leaves behind DNA. I mean, these are all only theories the FBI went with on why a serial killer would spend time in Mexico getting plastic surgery on the cheap. So we'll really never know, but isn't that insane? The thing about Keys is that he would admit to try to get into regular hobbies. But late at night when he tried to sleep, his demons would creep back up and all he could think about was murder. When Keys eventually got settled down in Alaska, he started his own business, Keys Construction. Eventually, while Keyes was up in Alaska, his family down in the lower 48, they moved around a lot. They spent some time in Indiana and eventually ended up in Wells, Texas. And while Keyes was in Alaska, he would take many trips back to the lower 48. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. So let's talk more about what happened and what people said after Keyes' arrest. Keyes' mom attended his arraignment in Texas. The FBI was eager to talk to her. Maybe she could offer some insight into Samantha Koenig's whereabouts. Because remember, they caught Keyes with Samantha's ID, but they still had no clue where she was. Keyes' mom reeked of religion. Long braided hair, covered from neck to feet. The FBI agents asked her if she could offer any information about Samantha's whereabouts. And Heidi Keyes, Israel's mom, simply replied, If God wants her found, she'll be found. What? That is cold. I'm not sure if it was this day or on another occasion, but Heidi did agree to speak to authorities. She was 59 years old and living in Wells, Texas with four of her adult daughters. She told authorities that Keyes had been in town that week in March for one of her daughter's weddings. When they asked Heidi to tell them more about his recent trip, she said that Keyes and his daughter arrived in town on March 8th at 10 p.m. Due to it being a last-minute wedding, she didn't find it odd that Keyes couldn't find a cheap flight into Texas. Instead, he flew into Vegas where he rented a vehicle and drove to Texas. So the FBI wanted to know more about any other recent trips that Keyes had taken, and Heidi recalled that Keyes had visited her during his lower 48 trip in February. Heidi Keyes said that Keyes and his daughter had flown into Houston in early February, rented a car, driven to New Orleans, where they went on a cruise to Mexico with Kim. After the cruise, Kim went on her own way. Keyes rented another vehicle, and together with his daughter, he met up with his mom and siblings in Dallas. Heidi recalled it was a weird visit where Keyes acted weird AF. She said he snuck out of her house in the morning. It was February 13th. He and his daughter were supposed to fly out the next day on Valentine's Day, but that didn't end up happening. That morning, February 13th, when Keyes left, Heidi found a note from Keyes. It said, quote, gone to fix the window and find a place to hide my guns, end quote. 
Heidi wasn't concerned about this statement. You see, the window, apparently something had happened to the rental car and so Keyes was just trying to get it fixed. And for the guns, well, Keyes was always a gun nut for as long as his mom could remember, so nothing seemed concerning there. So when they realized Keyes was gone that morning, the family started texting via a group chat at like 8 a.m. They wanted Israel to know that they could come help him. First, they started by offering to take the guns for him. Also, by the way, isn't it interesting that now they do have cell phones? I think that's so cool. So anyway, so it's like eight o'clock in the morning. They're like, hey, Israel, we can help you hide your stuff. But Keys left the family on red for much of the day. But later he responded and he was like, hey, I'm stuck in the mud in the middle of nowhere. By this point, it's after 8 p.m. And his family is like, OK, we can come get you. We have full world drive. We're like normal people now. So tell us where you are. But Keyes didn't respond until the following day. So now it's February 14th. Keyes texts saying he was in the parking lot in a Cleborne shopping center. So the family drove there. But when they got there, there was no sign of Keyes. And this family was committed to finding him. So committed, in fact, that even though Keyes left them on red, they slept in their van waiting for him to respond. And it wasn't until the morning of February 15th that Keys called his family. He's like, hey guys, I'm on the other side of the mall. WTF. So the family skedaddles and just drives to the other side of the mall. And there he was, their son, their brother. According to the book, American Predator, Keys appeared disheveled and incoherent. His rental car, which was a little tiny blue Kia Soul, it had mud splattered all over it. Keys's family was like, dude, what happened? And Keyes like was mumbling through what was happening. He said he ran out of gas. He didn't have money to pay for anything. And he hadn't slept or ate in two days. And it was just weird. Israel Keyes' family just stared at him, but they didn't ask any more questions. According to author Maureen Callahan, his family felt that Keyes was a superhero. Mr. Do-It-All, Mr. Can-Fix-Anything. And even though the idea that Mr. Fix-It sacrificed himself without food or water in the middle of the suburbs they didn't ask any more questions. Instead, since Keyes missed his flight to Alaska with his daughter, Heidi booked him another flight with her own money. But as soon as Keyes returned back to his mom's house, he disappeared again, this time for close to 24 hours. When he returned, he brought with him 900 buckaroos in cash and paid his mom for covering the flight tickets up front. On February 18th, Keyes and his daughter boarded a plane back to Alaska. Heidi remembered that Keyes was so different than usual during that visit. He drank a lot. He was so emotional. He was willing to speak to the church elders. Like it was just completely out of character. Israel Keyes confirmed during one of his confessions that when he was at his mom's house, he did leave to go hide his guns. Remember those kill kits. Well, these kill kits had guns and Keyes was going to bury the guns. But Keyes admitted he didn't leave the house and immediately bury the guns. No, no, no. According to the book American Predator, Israel Keyes went looking for a victim. He had looked in Cleborne and Glen Rose, Texas. He searched cemeteries and Keyes actually admitted that he went to a cemetery, had his eyes set on a woman walking a huge dog. And in that particular case, the dog didn't scare him because he planned on just shooting the dog. But then he thought about it and realized that it would be too much work to kidnap a woman while carrying a dead dog. So he just let it go. Instead, he pivoted to arson and bank robbery to get his high. So I'll tell you more about these other crimes later. In late February, once back in Alaska, we all know that that's when Keyes disposed of Samantha Koenig's body. But the thing is that after Keyes' arrest, they learned of another strange incident that happened back in Alaska almost as soon as he got back from Texas. Tammy, Keyes' daughter's mother, She recalled that on February 20th, her 10-year-old daughter called her and told her that she was scared. She told her mother that she found Keyes sleeping on the couch with a knife stuck on a table. The entire living room was a disaster. The couch, the curtains, they had all been cut up, presumably with the knife. So Israel Keyes' little girl tries to wake Keyes up who's sleeping on top of this chopped up couch, but he wouldn't get up. Eventually, Keyes woke up from a drunken sleep and assured Tammy back in the States that it was no big deal. The daughter was overreacting and everything was fine. When Keyes returned back to Texas in March to actually attend his sister's wedding, 
the family recalled Keyes was still acting weird, or I guess weirder than usual. Israel Keyes openly told people he didn't believe in God, and when a sister-in-law tried to tell him that God would forgive whatever sins he had committed, Keyes simply replied, You don't know what I've been through. I have to drink every day to forget what I've done. You don't know the depths of darkness that I've been to. You don't know what I've done, end quote. And then there was a time at his sister's wedding. Israel Keyes, the allegedly calm human, had an entire outburst during the flipping wedding. According to the book Devil in the Darkness, as the preacher preached his wedding sermon, Keyes got up and yelled, quote, your gospel has no grounding in truth, end quote. Then he broke into an evil smile. It was simply odd. Back in Alaska, the FBI was tracking down business associates, anyone who had done business with Keys, and they found a ton of people who were willing to talk. Some of those people reached out to the FBI via the FBI tip line, and others were knocking talks. People who had hired Keys in Alaska, well, they flooded the FBI tip line, but not with actual tips, just with concerns that the FBI probably had arrested the wrong guy. They said Keys was a reliable contractor, always friendly. They allowed him into their homes without supervision. Clearly, he was not the monster they were portraying him to be. One caller said that Keyes had mentioned he grew up in a commune and that he had previously told her that religion poisons people. He had also opened up about his kid's mom being unfit to care for their child because of alcohol abuse, which is why he gained full custody. One person who the book American Predator names as Heather Andrews, she said that she had hired Keyes and he had always been a good worker. But two incidents really struck her as odd. Once, as Keyes was working at her house, she looked up and caught Keyes staring at her in such a way that she felt utterly scared. Heather chalked it up to a one-time odd incident, but then a few months later, Keyes failed to show up to her house to start work on a project. Heather knew where Keyes lived, and after he failed to answer her calls, she showed up at his door. She was knocking for a good chunk of time, and eventually Keyes opened up. Heather said he smelled of alcohol, like he had gone on a bender. Heather felt sorry for the guy and she was like, hey, if you need anything, just let me know. And then she went in and grabbed him for a hug. Heather recalled that Keyes let her hug him, but that he just stood there in her hug, arms down, limp by his side, almost as if he wasn't all there, like he was checked out. Another woman told authorities that she had hired Keyes for a job. Well, while he did the job well, something was off about him. She said Keyes couldn't have finished his job quickly enough because she was so glad to never see him again. And then there was an online user named Israel who was commenting all over news reports about Samantha Koenig when she was still just a missing person. Apparently, this online Israel had posted a five-page response to a news website's posting of the surveillance video of Samantha being abducted from the coffee kiosk. Keyes eventually confessed that he was feeling pretty confident after Samantha's murder so confident, in fact, that he even used his first name to comment online his own theories of Samantha's disappearance on the Anchorage Daily News website. When Israel Keyes' home with Kim was searched, they found several filing cabinets in the basement filled with travel records, receipts, and taxes. During interrogations, Israel Keyes told investigators that there had been three laptops at home. Two were still present, but one of them he got rid of. The FBI originally didn't think they'd find anything on Kimberly's computer, but they were wrong because when they searched it, well, on that computer, authorities found hundreds of faces of missing persons. According to the book American Predator, the pictures were attached to newspaper articles of missing people, but some were pulled off of Facebook. And among those pictures were pictures of the couriers and pictures of Samantha Koenig. Once they ran all the faces, they could identify 44 people using software. 11 were teenagers, 10 were small kids, and two were only one year old. On Keyes' own computer, they found all types of pornography, bondage, S&M, gay, transgender. He also had links to Bandit Tracker. This is a website that hosts surveillance videos of bank robbers. Another thing they found on his computer were searches for real estate. Keyes spent a lot of time searching for abandoned houses and remote churches. After his arrest, Israel Keyes was given a court-appointed attorney, but he and Keyes did not get along. Keyes kept trying to fire the guy. Keyes would tell the FBI that he wasn't a very patient person when it came to the court process, 
and he couldn't see himself spending the rest of his life in prison. Keyes' attorney wanted to prolong the case considering the magnitude of evidence, but Keyes wanted the closest possible trial date. When the FBI asked Keyes about his most recent relationship with his girlfriend, Kim, Keyes admitted that that relationship was basically dead in the water. Their blissful life was quickly fading. Tammy opined that Kim wasn't keen on being a stepmom. So when Keyes' daughter came to live with them, she became jealous of the time suck that is raising children. But she also became jealous because Keyes adored his daughter. In any event, Keyes said he was getting bored with Kim and he was fixing to leave her. But another thing that Keyes said is that he never lived in any place for more than five or six years at a time. Having lived in Alaska for five years by that point, he had been itching to leave. So guys, that's really what we know about Israel Keyes in a nutshell. Next time, I'll pick up with other Israel Keyes crimes, including arson, bank robbery, and some unsolved murders that might be connected to Israel Keyes. And that's what we'll start next time on Military Murder. And don't worry, I will wrap up Israel Keys on the next episode, although there might be a few bonus episodes on Keys in my Patreon and Apple Premium, but those are going to be like just miscellaneous things. Thank you so much, True Crime Army, for joining me in your last few hours of 2023. You have all been such a blessing for me and my family this year. Happy New Year, and I'll see you in 2024. And if you could do me one favor, I would really appreciate it. In this new year, maybe you'll consider telling a friend about Military Murder, the podcast. If you did that, it would mean the world to me. Love you. My main sources for today's episode were two books. First, J.T. Hunter's Devil in the Darkness and Maureen Callahan's book, American Predator. I also relied heavily on the FBI.gov website, which included extensive write-ups and videos of Keyes' confessions. If you're interested in a serialized podcast on Israel Keyes, I highly recommend you listen to True Crime Bullshit. The host is Josh Hallmark, and he dives deep into Israel Keys. Josh has read and watched anything ever put out on Israel Keys, and he travels the country speaking about the guy. So the podcast is an amazing deep dive resource. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Production. This month's executive producers are Falcon 13, Jen, Tina, Alicia, Nicole, and Myrtle. The music was created by Ty Ops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Mama's working on her podcast. I don't want to.